isn't my town. I'm in charge of everything. I decide who lives or who dies. In a town called Redemption. A winner-take-all sudden-death contest is about to take place. I now declare the quick-draw competition open. But now, there's a new face in town. You're pretty. You're not. The kind of woman who knows that the fastest way to a man's heart is a Colt 45. Sign me up. Sure must want to die young, miss. Who are you? I'm going to kill you if I have to ride all the way to hell to do it. The quick and the dead. You're either one or the other. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the B-Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Kautzer, and today we are on the back half of our double feature titled Badass Women Westerns, where we're looking at two Westerns uh, that feature prominent female uh, lead roles. Um, We're looking at Quick and the Dead today, directed by Sam Raimi, starring the indomitable Sharon Stone. And uh, we're going to be doing this all month long, and not not just genre, but we're going to be deep diving into badass women in general, as you could tell by the show notes. Uh, This is not something to be missed out on. I... I'm already digging this uh, this uh, this month long series, and we're uh, we're doing it uh, kind of in honor of Ocean's Eight. But we just kind of felt I kind of felt with redoing the podcast. I I think I'd been a little remiss about our you, you know about the female contingent within the B movie or forgotten cult cinema, and I. Like why not? Like uh, like why not? Uh, you know, go ahead and take a look at, uh, you know, um, close to ten films that feature women in some prominent role. So we're gonna be changing it up. We're gonna be doing genres. Um, we even have in the middle of this all we have a uh, double feature about a female director that I feel has been um, much maligned. I love her work, and we'll get into that shortly. But. Today, we're talking Sharon Stone and Quick and the Dead. As I said, it was released in 1995, in the spring of 1995, uh, directed by Sam Raimi. Um, much like uh, the last episode, Bad Girl, with Bad Girls, I fucking love this movie. I This was like an instant classic for me, um, seeing it in 1995. Uh, Sharon Stone was... An actress that I mean, like many of my generation, we we kind of fell in lust with, but that lust kind of turned like it turned more into respect for me very quickly because when you when you look at her work with Paul Verhoeven and then outside of Paul Verhoeven um, in the '90s, uh, she led the way. I mean, you know, she was she was often described as difficult, but when you look at her output and you look at what she did in the nineties and how far she pushed things and how she tried to, um, you know, not even tried how she succeeded in playing with the big boys, uh, in any number of genres, like, you know, and not limited to this one. Uh, it's kind of staggering to me. Like Sharon Stone is one of those women that I feel like we've, we've forgotten about. Like we as Hollywood, like Hollywood bloggers, everybody has forgotten about Sharon Stone. Uh, she was recently in, um, a TV series, uh, directed by Steven Soderbergh. That series is called Mosaic. It's a very, very, very interesting um television series that like i said you should not sit on uh, she is 
fucking amazing in that. Um, I, I honestly feel that she's gotten, again, she's gotten the short short end of the stick. And uh, it's just not right in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I think that much of, I don't think she gets enough credit for um, what she did as an actress and as a star. I mean, you know, the reason why Basic Instinct works isn't because of isn't because of M- Michael Douglas. It's because of Sharon Stone and her fucking phenomenal work there, uh, channeling, uh, you know, channeling every every like femme fatale or cool blonde that Hitchcock ever uh, ever created into one gigantic performance that is uh, both hypersexualized and very pointed at, uh, you know, social norms. Uh, I think that that film does not, I mean, as much as it's very troubling um, in certain respects, I think it's also a, a very sharp and astute uh, kind of critique of the male ego. I don't think that people give it, that film enough credit for what it does and what it says about about males. And I mean, particularly taking like if you look at it from this uh, the guise of nowadays, uh, just look at it from like like where Michael where Michael Douglas was and how he was the king of. Uh, the king of like white yuppie suburbia. I mean, that's basically where he was in 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 that film. And then look at what happens in that film and who ultimately wins in that film. Uh, and again, I know that there's some really troubling stuff in there um, socially, um, uh, but I think that there's a lot to be taken out of that film. And I think it's a lot sharper than people give it credit for, much like anything in Paul Verhoeven's oeuvre. But we are not talking about uh, we're not talking about that today. Um, maybe eventually we will get to Basic Instinct, but we're actually talking Quick and the Dead, like I was saying. Uh, directed by Sam Raimi, uh, written by Simon Moore. Uh, we'll get to some of the uh, some of the other writers that had um, their fingers in this because this was a, a pretty troubled production, and we'll get into that later. But um, if you don't know what uh, what Quick and the Dead is about, it is about a town called Redemption, yes, very on the nose, um, that annually holds a gunfighting, um, a quick draw competition, and it's held by the the man who has a stranglehold over the town, Herod, and played by the indomitable Gene Hackman, and it's how the lady, a.k.a. Ellen, but, I mean, she's just gone by the lady, uh, very similar to, uh, you know, Leone's Spaghetti Westerns. Uh, a nameless stranger comes into the town and uh, proceeds to uh, sign up and exact some kind of revenge. Now, what kind of revenge she's, she's going after and ultimately... The reasons why are at the core of the film. And if you've never seen this film, fucking stop what you're doing and watch this movie. It's fucking Sam Raimi and it's a Western. And he's and he's homaging spaghetti Westerns. So and this is like right after Army of Darkness. This is young, hungry Sam Raimi just getting into the studio system. And I can tell you it is, I mean, like, we wouldn't be covering it if I didn't think it was fucking amazing. An amazing fucking film. And we'll get into that in a little bit, but, um... So what ends up what ends up happening is something that's very akin, a spiritual cousin to uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, which 
if I've not said this before, Once Upon a Time in the West is is my favorite Western of all time. Uh, it, hands down. The best thing that Leone ever directed, um, the best Western of all time. It took conventions and twisted them and put them on their ear. It says so much about humanity, about uh, about men and their uh, men and their silly games and how vent what what's what vengeance is about manifest destiny uh, a woman's role in society at that point uh, it, it's just like it's a staggering piece of work uh, i recently got to see that movie on the at the man chinese or it's not called the man chinese anymore it will be forever the man chinese in my heart uh, just like in some cases people will always call it the Grauman's chinese but it's the tlc chinese in hollywood and uh during the tm uh tcm film festival one of uh, the closing film that i got to see was once upon a time uh in the west and got to see it on the hugest IMAX screen that it, like you know imaginable and it's just it blew me away utterly blew me away I mean and this is a film that I revisit at least once every one to two years um because of how much I love that film and uh you know of course I'm gonna love I'm gonna love a movie that that takes reference to that movie and runs with it uh and sam raimi just god he collectively works on a different level here um creating a a milieu in this western that's just it's otherworldly um the way that this movie works out it's it's both a western a revenge and it's a sports film uh very much like a sports film like a like an 80s like an 80s martial arts uh movie or um you know uh a boxing movie or like any any other kind of competition movie it's it's very much so in that vein except for at the end of a match somebody dies and uh Sharon Stone as the lady um intricates herself into the situation to get closer to um Herod and finds it a lot more complicated than just facing off against him she has to go through a litany of bad guys and oh man do we have a murderer's row of of villains in this movie uh, I mean we just have a murderer's row of actors in this fucking film um so let's just kind of get right into it um you know it's not just Sharon Stone that's like just fucking badass in that in this movie this movie has literally a murderer's row of of great actors let me just name them off name some of them off to you gene hackman leonardo DiCaprio, russell crowe woody strode keith david lance hendrickson pat hinge mark boone jr Tobin Bell and Gary Sinise, not including cameos by Bill Campbell, the always great Mick Garris, uh, uh, and uh, well, if you if you know the the Raimi world, you know who John Cameron is, and he makes a an appearance too. I mean, just think about that. Think about all those people that I just told you. Each one of them a star in their own right um, in a certain era and you're either coming before or after that. But I mean, you have what five, uh, <laughs> five Academy award nominees, uh, three winners. I mean, that's fucking unreal. And you have, you have two like honest to fucking God legends in Woody Strode and Gene Hackman. I mean, Woody Strode is the connection, the connective tissue to, um, 
<laughs> to, to Once Upon a Time in the West. I mean, he plays one of the gunslingers, and then and then in this film, he plays the Undertaker, which is so fucking great. I mean, uh, like you know, if you know, like it, it kind of seems like a natural progression, and it's just it's fantastic to see him in this film. Um, and these like these actors, they're not sitting on their laurels, or they're not like just coming in and just doing a little bit. I mean, each one of them has a richly drawn character and have like moments within the film that rise this thing above just your average like mid 90s western like like, there's some real care and and time that's been taken to develop these characters and I think a lot of that has to do with not only more as a writer um, but also the additional work that was done by um, by John Sayles Uh, John Sayles took this over um, during pre-production to get it to the finish line and uh you can just tell his touch in here it's really interesting to see that you know Raimi and like it's a match made in heaven if you really think about it Sam Raimi and and John Sayles together I like like I had visions like when um how I originally knew this and this is something that like really crawled into my my ear into my brain um was when uh, once upon a the, once upon a time in the West, the person that was doing the uh, the introduction for it was John Sales, and he even mentioned that he like that he had done rewriting on uh, Once Upon a Time or I'm sorry, Quick and the Dead, um, because specifically because it was a very similar story to Once Upon a Time in the West, which is also his favorite western, and. Um, uh, we are going to be covering John Sayles' films um, in the near future. Um, as you can tell, Pluskin is very much in agreement with with that with uh, with that assessment. But um, his his work here really brings out the characters. I mean, you know, it's it, it's one thing to have like you know. Um, Keith David and Lance Hendrickson, like, you know, basically B-movie stalwarts in cameo roles or in supporting roles, but it's a completely entirely different thing to have Keith David as this uh, this retired um, buffalo hunter, Sergeant Cantrell. Uh, I mean, it gives it a different layer, but not only that, but he's like the purposes of why he's joining, why he's joined the um, the competition is is very interesting and it informs onto the story and kind of gives a greater flavor to the story, which again, I'm not going to ruin, but um, because I think that a lot of you probably haven't seen this, this movie, but giving Keith David that kind of role, it gives an extra layer of of like peanut butter goodness to it. Uh, and Lance Hendrickson too, I mean, playing Ace Hanlon, the, the sharpshooter of them all, but it's what he brings to it and it's the the like the informed nature of what like who he is he's kind of like a playoff of um buffalo bill hickok and the sharpshooter kind of you know carnival uh carnival attraction uh roadside attraction that would go around in the uh in that era uh doing trick shots you know shooting uh shooting holes through aces and that's how he got his name is that he does this he does all these tricks i mean he's even modeled after buffalo bill with the long flowing hair and the and the peacock style um uh, attire and but when you give these guys that kind of role and you give them those kinds of ability to to have those kinds of like you know like subtle and unsubtle affectations it's great it's like amazing because you give them more to do 
And it, and it's not just them. I mean, you know, like Mark uh, Mark Boone Jr. in one of his first roles. I, I love Mark Boone Jr. He's just one of those great grizzled, like you know, character actors that just always brings a sense of reality into his into the the films uh, the films that he's in. And I just love the fact that he's constantly in venture films, um, in, in just various different roles. And it just it kind of tickles it, it tickles something in me that like makes me laugh every time I see him in a venture film. But he's I mean, he always brings a, a sort of realistic realism to his to his roles. And here is Scar. He just gets to like fucking just be deep, be this creepy as fuck dude. Um, and just get some of the best like one line cheesy one liners that there are um, or Tobin Bell before he was in uh, was in Saw. I mean, this fucking guy gets this like great opening moment role that that makes you laugh. But it's ultimately like the. It's like the most Sam Raimi villain character of all time, and Tobin Bell gets to play him to the hilt. And like, it, there's a setup and payoff that's super fucking awesome in the in the movie. Um, like, you know, and then you've got like people that come in, like Gary Sinise playing very much. So there's a very specific role that he plays that I won't ruin, but it is it is the thing that ties. Um, that ties this film to Once Upon a Time in the West, and then we haven't even talked about our four stars. Uh, our four stars. I mean, I mean, I've talked a little bit about Sharon Stone, but Gene Hackman, Leo DiCaprio, and Russell Crowe. Which it's kind of interesting um, when you start to hear about the production problems in this film and uh, like the things that Sharon Stone as a producer had to fight for. Like two of them are. Leonardo DiCaprio and Russell Crowe. She had to fight for both of them because Sony just didn't see them as, I mean, they were A, not bankable stars. I mean, Russell Crowe in the film world had like, you know, had a nuclear bomb of a film come out, uh, come out. And by nuclear bomb, I mean like it was, it was a movie that was electrifying, um, and very startling and disturbing, uh, a movie called Romper Stomper. Um, some of you guys may know it. It's, uh, it, it's a, an Australian film. Uh, it's it's the predecessor to American History X. It's basically this Australian film about a neo-Nazi skinhead. Um, and Russell Crowe played the neo-Nazi skinhead. And, uh, you know, people that had seen it around the world, I mean, were just, they weren't only shocked, but I mean, it was, it was one of those star-making performances. And Stone had seen it and wanted him in the film. She felt that he was, it, like he was the perfect complement to to her role as the lady i mean he's very much so the he's kind of he's kind of both the claudia cardinal and the um uh, the claudia cardinal and the uh, jason robards role in um in this film but a little bit more i mean he like there's some certain there's certain things that that we learn about him and certain things that happen in his final fucking moment is so fucking great um but then you also have leo dicaprio as the kid and she she felt so strongly about him as a performer that she actually paid for her for his salary out of her own pocket I mean that should tell you something about her and what she's owing what Stone is about like you know 
I really hate that she's gotten a lot of shit over the years for doing exactly what most of her male co-stars have done. And they've been like, you know, the media has kept quiet about it. But God forbid Sharon Stone asserts uh, asserts herself and has a fucking opinion because she at the time was one of the biggest stars in the world. And she wants to make sure that it's done not just her way but correctly because every choice that she asked for was right i mean she was right to ask them to cut out the uh, the sex scene and i mean you know the compromise of her having to like you know in the u.s them taking it out but keeping it internationally i mean that's a fucking shitty thing but she got it cut out of the american audience which is ultimately who will go see a western and so not having the sex scene in there takes uh, takes this into another this normal like oh okay Sharon Stone is getting uh, is in a sex scene again um it's something more it, it it takes it it takes that bullshit away and makes something a little bit more powerful for her as a character and you know like Everything that she's done and she did in this movie and how she did it, like, I mean, she she wanted Sam Raimi. Like, Sam Raimi was her first choice, and she had to fight for fucking that. Something that I find truly ironic that Sharon Stone is basically the reason why we have Raimi as the director of Spider-Man. Because without Quick and the Dead... He's never on Sony's radar, and Sony is the one who ultimately had the decision-making powers with Spider-Man during that first iteration that we saw with Tobey Maguire. So if he was never, if he never directed that movie and made it on time and on budget, um, through the disaster of a of a production, from what I understood, um, had happened, then he's never on their radar, and we never get Spider-Man. So just kind of think about that. That Sharon Stone. With 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 her quote unquote troubling like quote unquote meddling as I've read in some kind of in some of these accounts was actually the reason why we have certain things. I mean, think about it this way. Also, Leo DiCaprio, if he's not if he doesn't do this movie, he doesn't he doesn't push himself a little bit farther up the rung. And maybe it's maybe he misses out on Romeo versus uh, Romeo and Juliet in two years. And then at that point, doesn't even actually get into the room to get into Titanic. I mean, same thing with Russell Crowe. I mean, this these are things that I feel like she is the reason why these these people have the course trajectory, their career trajectory trajectory that they do. I mean, just think about that, that Sharon Stone, who's been labeled like who was labeled difficult at a certain point helped three men push their career forward three of them like and not just three like inconsequential actors or and director it's a director that you know you look at the early 2000s and you cannot think about the early 2000s without him and what he does for the comic book movie then you have uh, two Academy Award-winning actors, one that redef- like you know is is basically like you know the modern equivalent of Cary Grant or whoever you want to take as a superstar supreme. I mean, he DiCaprio is like you know he's going to probably be one of the last traditional stars that we superstars that we have, unless something happens and something changes and one of the Chris's goes to another level or whoever it is all of a sudden comes out and becomes more. He's going to be the last one that we have that went from matinee idol to 
um, you know, to respected actor to superstar. I mean, that's a that's a hard trajectory. And then you have Russell Crowe, who's fucking just, I mean, for the time from from 1997 to 2005, I don't know of anybody else that were that had done more badass cinema than Russell Crowe. Yes, he was troubled. And yes, we do see where he is now. But I mean, the man is like Oliver Reed, Charlie Bronson, um, a little bit of Harrison Ford, um, all rolled into one. I mean, like, I think that he would probably, I think he'd probably appreciate the Oliver Reed, uh, you know, compliment. He may not like the other ones. He may even fucking throw a phone at me, but, uh, yeah, I mean, he's, I mean, like, think about that. Just, just think about that. I mean, the next time that somebody, like, I always, I always think about these kinds of things, especially when people, like, you know, men specifically start talking shit about women and their roles in, in film. I mean, recently we've seen a lot of that and it's disgusting to me because they're like, if anything, I feel like, if anything, I feel like, you know, there is, there is a style and a decision making that's a lot more interesting coming from uh, coming from a strong female perspective that that we've not seen. And I think that maybe like I know it's time to have that intricate intricated into our into the Hollywood system, because if we don't just like just like adding in like, you know, persons of color into, into film and, and not just in a un, uneventful way, like an un, like just as in like, you know, throwing the bump on screen, but like, you know, making sure that black and Hispanic actors and Latino actors are like have a meaningful role and Asian, Asian actors have a meaningful role and also filmmakers. I mean, this is the reason why like I'm partially doing this is because it's, it gives you an idea, like when you look back on history, when when somebody has been given something, especially somebody like Sharon Stone, who was at the peak of her powers here, what you get is not just a good fucking movie, but you get talent out of this that basically mapped and charted Hollywood for a while um, in a very strong way, and she doesn't get any credit for it. And this film doesn't get any credit for it. I mean, this this film is like on par with like, say, American Graffiti when it comes to genre actors or just actors in general. It's just fucking amazing to me uh, that more people have not kind of come to this and just said, wow, this is a great fucking movie, um, you know, and. It was a troubled production. I mean, as I was saying earlier, uh, from what I understand, like Raimi, Ra- Ra- for Raimi, it was a trial by fire. Uh, I mean, he had, he had one, he had like, from what I understood, like from the, my research, he had one, he had one or two really strong, staunch supporters on, on the, on the film. I mean, he, of course he had his, his producer who, who had taken more of an associate producer and line producer, uh, credit on this film, uh, Robert Tappert. He had Sharon Stone and that was about it. Everybody like had, 
like had their own agendas and specifically um, Gene Hackman. But from what I understand, I understand about Hackman, Hackman was always and always will be a crotchety old alpha dog and he, he suffers no fools. And from like the stories that I heard, like I've done in my research, it, it found that he was a very cantankerous man at this point. I mean, when they got him, like when they initially got him, what they they had to move the production to Arizona, which is closer to where he lived. They were going to film in New Mexico, but they, then they ended up having to move to, like I said, Arizona to be closer to him. And then there were moments and times where he just refused to fucking come out of his trailer or film scenes. And it, it's only like Sam Raimi's like, you know, street smarts, I'll call them street smarts because the dude, the dude grew up in Michigan. I mean, you know, you, you, when you watch the evil dead, that is a, uh, that is a film that's put together with scotch tape on the edges of the film. And you never, you don't notice it or the artifice is so great that you, the artifice becomes the style, but he's got a lot of balls and he's got a lot of like smarts and, I could see how he could trick, like, you know, he could navigate these waters with a legend like Hackman. Because, like I said, Hackman suffered no fools whatsoever from what I understood. I mean, and this is not the only movie where he's he's been like that. I mean, just, you all you have to do is look up the stories about him on the Royal Tenenbaums. And you'll understand, you know, just how cantankerous uh, this dude can be. But I think that he had good, like, it's not that he has good reasons. It's just that... Gene Hackman knew who he was. He was Gene Hackman. So if, like, if you were, I think, I mean, I just imagine that if you were anything other than referential to him, he would have a problem with it. And I could see how, you know, Sharon Stone being the lead would rub him the wrong way. Even though he signed up for it, he got paid a lot of money for this. But being essentially third, fourth fiddle to... Sharon Stone, this kid named DiCaprio, and this Aussie named Russell Crowe, I could see how it would probably rub him the wrong way. But what you get out of him in this film is utterly fantastic. Like, uh, I mean, Tenenbaums is a, is a favorite of mine. Uh, Royal Tenenbaums is, it's a movie that it hits me so hard emotionally. And a lot of that is, it has to do with Royal. I think that he's a, like in a, in a weird way. Like I, it's a little too personal. I won't get into that, but needless to say, um, Hackman in there is like, like to me, that's my favorite Hackman performance, but this is definitely top five material of this one here because of just how much, how many layers there are in this performance, how much is going on. This is truly like kind of the analogous of Peter Fonda in once upon a time in the West, because he's it's, it's not that he's evil or it's insepid. It's literally, he feels like he is the good guy and everything that comes with that, which is pretty fucking brilliant when you like, he knows he's evil, but he is like a necessary evil and watching him play out these scenes and watching him work with both DiCaprio and Crow is, I, I mean, you know, like, and especially Sharon Stone, it's, it's, it's electrifying. Like there's a moment where he's, um, he slaps Sharon Stone and, 
from all reports, like it's the first take and he actually slapped her. Like that's something that you just don't do. Like I know that we've, we've come to learn, like, you know, a lot of people hear about, Oh yeah. You know, they, they, they did this without the actor's knowledge. Uh, most of the time that's bullshit. I can tell you, I, I mean, you know, that is not what they, that, that's not what you do. Like, especially on sets. I mean, that stuff is very rare and really uncalled for, but, it does lead to a like that moment when you see Sharon Stone, you look at her and you know she wants to fucking kick a motherfucker in the balls. And she has every right to because fucking Hackman fucking smacks her, like really smacks her. And it's not it's not a hard smack, but it's I mean, it doesn't matter. It's a fucking smack regardless. Um, but it, like that kind of like it's this it's the performances that it's not just his performance. It's the performances that are coming, bouncing off of his, like them, like one of my favorite, like my two favorite moments in this film are the Sharon Stone dinner scene and the, or, or the, the lady versus Herod dinner scene. And then the court and Herod go to the kids, uh, general shop to buy a gun. And, the reason why I like the I like the the dinner scene is we like it's only upon like it's upon the second viewing that there's more even more layers that's going on but the it's this kind of spy craft I have my moment to to be sneaky about about killing this fucking dude but I don't that I'm so scared I don't like you know it, it it locks me in and I'm locked out of being able to do that. I mean, that and in the way that Stone plays it, the vulnerability she allows in um, during this entire scene, how it slowly creeps in. And you can see the 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 moment where like it gets caught in her throat and she can't do it and she just runs away and she feels like a failure. It's it's an it's an amazing scene, but it's an amazing scene because Sharon Stone has a partner to go up against. Uh, you know, she has a partner, a willing partner to play back and forth in in Gene Hackman and the other one with, you know, Hackman uh, taking court, uh, you know, or uh, Herod taking court into the general store that the kid runs that is supposedly a son and the way that those three play off of one another and how different their styles are. And it's like, it's a master course. You could only imagine. I would love if there was any if there was any B-roll footage. I would love to see that B-roll footage with those three alphas in the same room with one another and how Sam Raimi navigated that because you have so many agendas going on. You have the I mean just like the actors agendas but you also have like everything that's going on in the story. You have the relationship between um court inherit and how they are true killers and how they are they almost look down on the kid but each one of them looks down on him differently like like Herod looks down on him because he's not his blood and he knows that he'll never be a killer, a true psychopath. And that's why he goes after court and chases him down because he wants him back. He knows that the kid is never going to be a, a stone cold killer like uh, like court was or and is um, court looks down on the kid because 
he knows he knows the kind of hero worship that the kid has for Herod and how because he was the kid at a certain moment he was a, like the kid in it and it cost him so much it cost his soul so much and then you also have the kid who's looking at both of these guys as like I mean hero worship I mean he wants he like any like any kid he wants to impress his father and then he, there's a bit of competition uh but also mutual grudging respect between the kid and court, especially when they're going back and forth about the different guns. Um, but there's a lot to play there. And it's a, like, it's one of the central pieces of these three characters and how they, how they interact. And it's, it's just looks like this great informed um, piece of writing that I really love as much as I love the the Herod and the lady dinner scene because it informs those characters so fucking much. Um, and all the while, like Sam Raimi going from I mean, if you can you imagine this, Sam Raimi went from Army of Darkness to this and you know, it's just this lush visual feast of a Western. Like if you, it's really, it's, it's a lot of fun when you realize that Raimi hired a bunch of Italian uh, filmmakers or behind the scenes crew to make this movie. And it heavily influences um, the way that the film comes out. It really does feel like like Sam Raimi doing a spaghetti western. I mean, you have Dante Spinotti, the the great Italian cinematographer. You have uh, Pietro Scalia, um, Ridley Scott, like one of Ridley Scott's editors, prime editors that uh, he works with. Uh, you've got um, Patricia Van Brandenstein, who was who who was known to work in Italy um, with uh, production design and. You've got you've got these people that like influence this film in a very different way than anything that Sam Raimi has done before or since. Um, there's like there's like a stately beauty to it, uh, along with his normal tricks. But there are these great long tracking shots that show off the production design of the sets and these continuous tracking shots inside and outside of sets. It's, it's, it's wonderful. There's a moment where, um, it's the opening night. It's the opening night of the, like, it's the opening ceremonies basically. And they're doing the signups and, um, Spinati and, uh, and Raimi do this one long tracking shot um, that's uh, lit by firework and, and gaslight. And uh, like watching it again on Blu-ray, I was just struck by how beautiful it was. And these sets are so fucking great. It doesn't, it feels exactly like what you, like it feels exactly like an Italian, uh, an Italian Western town like it really does and like some of the shit that they're able to do with this town is fucking amazing it's so fucking great i mean and i haven't even talked about the about the face-offs the the showdowns the like you know the the gun uh, the gunfights themselves which are fantastic they're they're very 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 ramey-esque and manages to shoot each one of them a little bit differently to give you a little bit of a different flavor but it's also because a lot of that is character based and the way that he shoots it is very character based so you get this altogether different um flavor from the movie that's 
that that's all Sam Raimi. But it's just a little bit different because it's not it's it's not an Italian western. It's not an American western. It's a fucking Sam Raimi western, which I fucking love. And now to the 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 good stuff. Now to the dessert. Um, I'm hoping you liked the first iteration of this uh, of remaking it, where I took Bad Girls and put it into 2018. Um, and so. 2019 or 2018 again we're looking at what would be the best cast for the recasting of um this film quick and the dead for the release in 2018 or 2019 so we're going to start with the lady played by sharon stone now i felt like this this actress uh that i picked is kind of in the similar spot that that Sharon Stone was in her career. They they got to it in different ways, but ultimately they are very similar in in that regard. Which is, I'm gonna go with I I I feel like Kate Blanchett would fucking kill in this role. Now, mind you, I'm gonna say that I still want Sam Raimi to direct this. I would love to see Sam Raimi like you know circa 2018 what he would do with this film so we're going to say sam raimi is going to stay the director if not sam raimi if we need another person um somebody that i actually talked about uh uh, last episode that i feel like would 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 do a great job of it and she would bring a completely different flavor which is um uh Kelly Reichert, uh, Kelly Reichert's like filmography doesn't show any like shows West. She has uh, she has a Western there. She has some really great work. But I think that like this would be an entirely different model that I would love to see her do and what she could bring to it. Um, so, yeah, Kate Blanchett and Kelly Reichert working together now for Herod. You need a legend like, you know, Gene Hackman was a legend. Uh, I mean, he still is a legend. Uh, you need a you need a legend to play that role to really kind of go. And I I love I loved what I loved the fact that it was it was like that it was a referencing Peter Fonda without really like doing the Peter Fonda thing, which was taking it. Or I'm sorry, Henry Fonda taking. If I've been saying Peter Fonda, I am really sorry, but it was Henry Fonda and taking Henry Fonda, the bastion of good. I mean, he played young Abraham Lincoln for fuck's sake and twisting him to a villain. And, um, I honestly would love to see Harrison Ford play this role. Like if Harrison Ford can bring his a game, I think that we would be in for an amazing performance. Um, now, Court, who is played by Russell Crowe, um, I'm going to say we're going to go Auss- Aussie here also again, Australian and fuck it. We're going to do one of the Chris's. I think Chris Hemsworth at this point needs a role non uh, non um, non Marvel that just kind of proves that he's a badass and that might be a couple of movies that are coming up but ultimately if we're just talking straight right now and i want to see it right away i i think that like him playing court would bring a different like would bring the same kind of mochismo that australians bring to the screen like like russell crowe did but it would be a different bit of flavor to it just enough to be interesting um the kid <laughs> so you have you have Leo DiCaprio who had not really done a lot of work yet but his 
um, his, I don't know what you'll say, his je ne sais quoi, um, had left, like, had left a lot of people, not just young women, um, wanting more of him on the screen. With that, in that regard, um, even though I don't care too much for his performances, I would love to see if he could pull something like this off. Um, and he seems to be on on course to be um, what a lot of people think is the next Leo DiCaprio, which is uh, Timothy Chalamet. Um, again, I think that he would like to be honest, I think he would be perfect in this. It's it's the like giving but also giving a different flavor to it and not maybe not as as boisterous as DiCaprio was, but still the kind of cocky arrogance that a kid could have. Um, now for the the different various uh, supporting uh, supporting actors that are in this, I, I I had a lot of fun kind of re envisioning this cast. Um, the first one, Dog Kelly, played by Tobin Bell, uh, you know, uh, Jigsaw himself, and I thought, you know, the thing about Tobin Bell in this role is you can almost smell the stench off of him. And I know this, like, don't take this the wrong way, but like, that was kind of like the thing that I took from it. And I feel like, like the only person that could probably properly play this role is a personal favorite of mine, Peter Stormare or Peter Stormare, however you want to pronounce it. Like he would be a guy that, I know that when I saw him visually on screen, I could smell him like that's what would like that. Like, you know, he would just run with this, this, this like lunatic, like supporting role. And I think he'd be perfect. Um, Ace Hanlon, the Lance Hendrickson character. I went a little odd. I went with um, instead of going with in the same vein, I went I went elsewhere and went with a, a favorite, a recent favorite of mine, which is Vince Vaughn. I, I think that seeing Vince Vaughn do a kind of version of what he did before, but doing it in a very menacing way would like that would just be perfect to me. And then to see him face off against Harrison Ford would be equally awesome. Um, Sergeant Cantrell played by David Keith. Um, I went with uh, somebody who I really like his work. And I think that like Keith David, he instantly brings like a, a certain specific um, set of uh, like, you know, set of audience expectations and that's uh sterling k brown uh, i feel like he could just kind of kill that role um and i would just love to see him in a, in that handlebar mustache in that in that pipe that with that pipe that uh keith david uses in the movie um then you've got scars uh played by mark boone jr and i went entirely different because i wanted him like scars is supposed to be menacing and he kind of is um, but in a completely different way, I want, I wanted, I went physically imposing and I went with Dave Bautista. I feel like he, he's a smart enough performer to understand what you're trying to do with the role and would bring the right amount of, uh, of winking and nodding of, of like understanding than anybody else would to that role. Um, and then you've got, uh, the Marshall. Uh, who was played by Gary Sinise and you need somebody that instantly like, like Gary Sinise, how you instantly are, are drawn to, to him and know him as like 
a good guy. I went with uh, Ethan Hawke. I think that like Ethan Hawke has an an instant affability and on screen when you if you were to see him go through what the Marshall does, um, you would definitely it, it would invoke the same sort of reaction. Um, Horace the bartender, played by Pat Hingle, who just has some of the most heartbreaking moments in this film. Uh, I felt like. Tracy Letts might be the perfect performer for this. And with Letts on set, because he's a screenwriter and he and he specializes in that South, uh, like, you know, that uh, Southwest kind of affectation of uh, in the West. I mean, he he has he did direct um he has, he has like, you know, I mean, he's a famous playwright. I feel like it would be helpful to have Sam, uh, to have him on set to maybe help out with, um, the scripting and kind of just maybe if they get into trouble, being able to work, like, you know, work a little bit out and plus seeing him uh, within the, some of those scenes that he has would be fucking amazing um and then finally a uh, gutson who's the uh, swedish <laughs> who's the fucking swedish uh quick draw champion played by um a b-movie favorite uh seven old thorson who if you guys know conan you know him you you know him. I mean, he's he's Arnold Schwarzenegger's boy. He's he's been in a lot of films with him. Um, was was a bodybuilder, and in here he plays like I said, the Swedish champion that takes on the kid in the first round. Um, I felt like it would be great to have somebody like Stalin Skarsgård, um, who is completely different than Thorson is, but it would kind of give you the idea that maybe he was going to be around for longer. And when he's not, it's kind of almost a shock. So, yeah, that's my cast for the the remake of Quick and the Dead coming in 2019 in IMAX 3D, directed by Sam Raimi. <laughs> and with that, guys, we're uh, we're out of time and we're we're done here. Um, we'll be back next week with Badass Women in Crime. Uh, and, uh, you'll have to check the letterbox, uh, account for what two movies we're talking about. Uh, but needless to say, they're going to be some pretty kick-ass films. And, uh, speaking of letterbox, we're on, uh, we're on three pieces of social media, Twitter, Instagram, and letterbox, all the same handle, uh, B movie pod, the letter B, the word movie, the word pod, no lines, no dashes, no bullshit. Uh, we are on a new, we are at a new home on the movie aisle. That is the movie uh, where you can look at, uh, you can look at our back catalog. And then also you can read reviews from myself and the, uh, the, the various writers that we have on. We actually are going to have some new writers coming on, which I'm very excited about. Um, but, uh, I'll say you, you can get our content everywhere and anywhere that you, you look. You just have to look in the right spots. Um, and again, guys, ladies, thank you so much uh, for your listenership. It does mean the world to me. I'm glad that I could, I'm getting back to doing what I really, really love, which is curating this, uh, this crazy-ass podcast that I've had on for close to two and a half years now. Um, and... Uh, we are coming up on our 200th episode, and that will post at the end of the season rather than at the beginning of the season, like in where it's supposed to be, just for consistency's sake. But the 200th episode is going to be spectacular, I think. I, I, have, a, I have a feeling that you guys are really going to like it, and... 
that's because of you guys. And I, I like I said, there's not going to be a Patreon page. All the bonus content is just bonus content. It's not because I don't believe in the model. I really honestly do. Um, but uh, this one I do out of love. And for the time being and the foreseeable future, there's not going to be a Patreon page, um, which just means that you're just going to get unfiltered content. But um, thank you so much. And we will be back next time with uh, more women being badasses. And with that, guys, talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.